John. Let's welcome our latest guest, Toby Harnon, to the show. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having uh-huh. me on. The man knows what to do on this show here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course. Well, your latest book, um, uh, First Casualty, uh, it's, it's a nonfiction category, but it really taps into a lot of, of, of authors that we follow and admire. And so um, I just wanted to see if you could maybe give the audience a 30,000 foot view of what this book was all about. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's very much narrative nonfiction. It's not like a dry as dust sort of academic book or, you know, it's not about strategy or that certainly, you know, is, is the context for it. But it's really the story of at the core of eight Americans, uh, members of CIA's Team Alpha, who were the first uh, Americans behind enemy lines uh, after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. So they landed um, south of Masri Sharif in the mountains on October the 17th, 2001, in Black Hawk helicopters. They had no body armor. They had no helmets. Uh, they had $3 million in cash in non-sequential uh, $100 bills. Uh, four of them were paramilitaries. Two of them were case officers, traditional spies, linguists. Mm. Um, one was a Green Beret and one was a medic. And they linked up with uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, who's a sort of classic warlord from central casting who'd fought with the Soviets against the Mujahideen who were backed by the CIA in, in the 1980s. Uh, and, and these eight guys, um, you know, exposed to incredible risk. Uh, one of them was Mike Spann, former Marine Corps officer, CIA paramilitary, who tragically was killed during an Al-Qaeda prison uprising on November the 25th, 2001. So, I mean, he paid the ultimate price, but every single day those guys were on the ground and they were on the ground 40 days before Mike was killed, um, was incredibly dangerous. Uh, They helped the Afghans, uh, the Northern Alliance, uh, along with Green Berets who came in three days after Team Alpha to uh, recapture Masri Sharif from the Taliban. That was the first domino to fall uh, in 2001 and sort of heralded the end of the Taliban, Taliban regime uh, obviously, they returned, you know, 20, 20 years later. So it's a really right. a, a story of a story of those guys and 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 what they went through and what happened. Right. Uh, for me, this was a, a highly complex book uh, with a great amount of detail, every single page. So, writing something of this scope and accuracy would take what looks to me like an unprecedented amount of research to thoroughly cover the opening of the war from so many different angles. So. How much time did you estimate or do you estimate went into the research for this entire book? It's sort of really hard to know. I mean, in a way, the research started on 9-11. You know, I was in Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, that day, you know, walking into the offices, the first plane hit the World Trade Center. Um, I you know, I tried very hard to get to Afghanistan immediately. The, the Daily Telegraph editors quite rightly said, no, 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 you stay mm. where you are, you know, <laughs> co- cover the cover the Bush administration and the war from that end. But I, yeah. you know, I wrote a couple of stories about Mike Spann uh, in that period. Um, and it, you know, his story sort of never, never left me. But then fast forward, you know, a couple of years later, I was in Iraq, and somebody said, you know, have you ever seen the video footage of the CIA officer who was turned out to be David Tyson, you know, running for his life in, in the Kalajangi fort in northern Afghanistan just after Mike Spann had been killed. Yeah. I, I hadn't. I watched it and I was just entranced by what David Tyson had been through that sort of thousand yard stare. Yeah. He'd seen his comrade killed. He killed many Al Qaeda getting out and he still didn't know whether he was going to survive. And then I tracked him down in 2013. And uh, in the way of these things, uh, by that point, I was living in northern Virginia. Uh, in McLean, where I still am, and David was living in Vienna, Virginia, which is kind of you know ne- the next town along. Sure, um, he was still at the CIA, so couldn't say very much. I did a few interviews at that point, and then put the sort of project to one side, as you do. But you know, over the over the years, I've been reading everything I could about Kalajangi, the Green Berets, the Horse Soldiers book, the Twelve Strong movie, mm-hmm. and all those events. The, Gary Schroen's um, first in book, uh, Gary Bernson's Jawbreaker book, Hank Crompton's memoir. So all the sort of surrounding material, but the actual kind of full-time research and writing was really very compressed. It was was probably 18 months 
from wow. the end of 2019 to uh, so uh, yeah, the end of 2019 to the middle of uh, 2021, uh, and I just hit it, and it was complete immersion. Um, I went from you know David Tyson just retired at the beginning of that period, so yeah. I started talking to David, and then I went from person to person, and just pulled it all together. And I was you know at the end I, we needed to hit the dead the publishing deadline so we could get the book out on the 20th anniversary of. of 9-11 until yeah. I was reading and researching and pulling it all together um you know right up until the last minute so it was, it was pretty intensive yeah well speaking of David Tyson I mean this is an academic linguist um who had just recently um been recruited into the CIA because of his language and, and his knowledge of the area um he was truly one of the only few experts in this arena within the U.S. Um, and he didn't have any, he didn't have any military background. He had very little intelligence background at this point, but he's also willing to go in with the first team, uh, to, and one of the first people to step foot in country. So where do you think we would have been as an organization, CIA organization, where do you think they would have been, you know, charging headlong into this, into this environment without him, because he seems so central to this early success. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting sort of question. Uh, mm -hmm. So he did have some military background, but it was very limited. He'd spent a bit of time as an enlisted artilleryman. Oh, that's and a, right. And a bit of time as an ROTC intelligence officer. But of the eight of them, right. I mean, he was no elite warrior and never would pretend that that, that he was. Um, and yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing about David, you know, who I've spent many, many hours with and who I count as a, you know, a, a good friend at this point, um, was that he's... Very, very sort of skilled linguist. I mean, he's almost fluent uh, Uzbek. Um, he'd lived for years in Central Asia. At one right. point, he was so close to going native, he didn't possess any shoes. You know, he really, <laughs> oh, you know, he was really into it, you know. And the Afghans often joke that, you know, he was an Uzbek in, a, in, a, in another life. So, you know, he's yeah. a very clever guy. But at the same time, there's a real sort of everyman quality about him. Yeah. That he's, you know, as you, as you say, you know, he's, He's just this guy who sort of steps up uh, along with some elite warriors, um, you know, Green Beret, and, but he's not you know, not a very military sort of person. And he's just he's just in this incredible, um, you know, incredibly sort of hostile environment, uh, fluid, you know, something that, you know, very, very few people will experience. Uh, but he was put on the team late at the last minute when they got to Tashkent because of his Uzbek uh, language, because yeah. Uzbek was the principal language of, of Dostum and Dostum's men. And the other linguist on the team was uh, J.R. Seeger, who uh, was a Dari linguist uh, who had worked with the Mujahideen out of Islamabad CIA station in the 1980s. And I think those two, the, the linguistic and cultural uh, knowledge and ability was absolutely crucial. Yeah. I mean, David with the Uzbeks, I mean, he was, you know, there are, there's a lot of, I mean, it's a tragic story in many ways and there's lots of blood and guts and violence and all the rest of it. There's a lot of humor. Yeah. And um, David was central to that. You know, he would joke with the Afghans about, you know, why do you stand up when you, you know, piss and um, why do we stand up when we piss and you sit down and, and you know, stuff about, you know, there was a story about condoms getting thrown flown in at one point and there was yeah. lots of hilarious about that, vodka, you know, and that kind of banter and, um, and, and joking and, uh, you know, telling stories and playing tricks, everything, that was how he bonded with the Afghans and, and drew them in. And it became a very, very strong bond. Right. And so I think if David hadn't been there and JRC hadn't been there, they would have been just operating blind. Right. Um, and, and it would have been a completely different story. And of course, as you say, I mean, David was the only Uzbek speaker in the CIA at the, at the time. None of the Green Berets spoke uh, Uzbek or uh, Dari or right. Pashto or any of the, any of the Afghan languages. I mean, some of them spoke Arabic and Russian. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess it was a, a feature of the whole US uh, effort that, you know, linguistic 
ability and 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 cultural knowledge uh you know was pretty sparse in in the u.s military and you know another i mean a thing i i feel about you know having studied this uh this very early period the early weeks um you know so closely is that although there was there was kind of a formula for success which was hundreds of americans on the ground rather than a hundred thousand acting as advisors to the indigenous allies who were uh, you know, the resistance fighting the invaders who were the arabs of al-qaeda and that was a formula that 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 worked there was also i mean this was Af afghanistan lots of things went wrong there was a lot of ambiguity um you know the whole prisoner uh, uprising yeah. uh, was a kind of a portent of of things to come and you know david for instance you know there's a point of the book kind of really early on where he he sort of realizes that even as one of the very few americans who speak the language and understand the culture i mean he just he's, he just sort of realizes it would take him several lifetimes to be able to understand this place and that's him so what's it like for the rest of the americans yeah. so i thought that was you know that was a sort of fascinating realization that he had very early on yeah i agree well that you know that's one of the challenges we face and i think the book does a great job of of sort of setting forth this the situation setting the table for where what it was like when we came in and and why we had successes and why we had failures at the outset of the conflict though the u.s administration and particularly secretary rumsfeld had very little knowledge of the true nature of the region even when it came to basic challenges like uh, the terrain and the weather and how that would impact the first teams looking to insert into their uh, areas of operation can you as assess after looking at this you know as closely as you have how much the scarcity of intelligence in those simple regards impacted the early operations by the in initial teams yeah, I mean, it was an incredible situation, really. So on 9-11, and this is very much a 9-11 book, you know, it's, it starts on 9-11 right. with sort of three of the principal characters, you know, David Tyson's flying to Tashkent, from Tashkent to Heathrow for uh, a meeting about Stinger missiles uh, at the CIA station in London. Uh, Justin Sapp, who's the Green Beret, he's underwater at Special Forces Dive School in Key West, Florida. And then Mike Spann, uh, is inside CIA headquarters, Special Activities Division, um, you know, when the events of 9-11 are unfolding. And, you know, um, immediately the, the sort of the man of the hour is Kofa Black, who's the Counterterrorism Center director, who's an old Africa division hand, um, who, uh, you know, was a sort of storied uh, case officer um, that, uh, you know, was once sort of targeted for capture or assassination by bin Laden. And mm -hmm. he and his team, including Alex Station, which was uh, the bin Laden unit within the counterterrorism center, had been, you know, monitoring and sounding the alarm about Al-Qaeda for years. And, and there'd been uh, embassy uh, bombings in East Africa in 1998. There'd been the attack on the USS Cole in October 2000. There'd been the Millennium Plot and the CTC and Kofa Black and the people who work for him have been saying like they are coming here. During this period, of the, the sort of two years or so before 9-11, uh, David Tyson was one of them. A number of CIA officers had been flying into the Panjshir Valley uh, via Dushanbe in Tajikistan usually uh, to link up with the Northern Alliance. And they had sort of formulated the outlines of a plan which uh, became known as the Blue Sky Memo, mm -hmm. uh, which was about how to uh, use the Northern Alliance to get at Al-Qaeda who were being hosted by the Taliban. Neither the Bush administration nor the Clinton administration, uh, you know, had the sort of political will uh, to, to go through with it. But on 9-11, all of a sudden, everything changes and Bush wants, you know, Bush is, wants to do it. And, and Kofa Black sort of pitches a plan in this sort of very sort of theatrical manner, but there's me flies walking across their eyeballs when we finished. And it fits the mood of the nation and, and the, the mood of the president. Uh, I mean, remarkably, the Pentagon had no plan. I mean, I thought they had plans of everything, including, you know, invading Mexico or Canada, and, but apparently no Afghanistan plan. And, you know, as I mentioned, no linguistic expertise amongst the Green Berets who've been preparing for other conflicts. 
And so the CIA uh, is doing it. And, you know, they had some intelligence, uh, small numbers of people who'd never lost sight of what was happening in Afghanistan, but not very much because essentially the US government had abandoned after Afghanistan when the Soviets left in 1989 because it was seemed to be no longer relevant. It was a sort of Cold War yeah. conflict. And so, you know, the principles of action were there. There was limited expertise, you know, as discussed with people like David and, and JR and a few others, Gary Schroen, who led the Jawbreaker team, but it was pretty thin on the ground. And so you could argue that it's, I mean, that makes the success in those early weeks and months even more remarkable because it was it wasn't even on the back of an envelope it was just like go there you know and, figure it and out get on the get, get on the ground and 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 work it out yeah and that's significant well you you mentioned uh earlier you mentioned uh abdul rashid dot um what is it dostrom uh dostrom, one, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. one of the biggest challenges and i know you interviewed him for the, for yeah. the book i believe yeah, yeah awesome that had to be somewhat uh chilling i would think <laughs> it was an experience um, definitely <clears throat> well one of the greatest challenges that we faced was dealing with the competing warlords who controlled the different regions of the country we had to find a way to you know work with all of them to take back the regions that were controlled by the taliban and i know it, 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 at least from the outsider's purview and, and just kind of reading some of what you've written it seemed that the administration thought they just come in and buy allegiances with bags of cash and equipment and but can you talk to our audience a little bit about the complexities of this situation from the different motivations of the groups and the tribalism that led to many complications for the yeah. U.S. mission? Yeah, I mean, certainly that was one of the, the fascinating things. Uh, yes, they did they did take in cash. I think I said $3 million, and they had another $3 million pretty, pretty soon afterwards. Yeah. And certainly uh, weapons and the sort of awesome might of U.S. air, air power overhead, which changed the... Uh, military equation yeah uh, they were very you know they were very very important but this but the cia was in there to manage the tribes and gather intelligence on al-qaeda and when uh team alpha landed there was dostum but nominally a subordinate um or an, and an ally but really a rival and potential enemy was atta muhammad Noor, who was a tajik uh commander in the area and Atta wanted to be the main man but you know the agency saw Dostum as being the main man and he had more troops and and he had a more of a proven record as a as a fighter but um when when team alpha landed Atta is you know his nose was out of joint he wouldn't he wouldn't go and meet the CIA even though right. he was very very close and you know there was all this sort of gamesmanship uh where you know, J.R. Seeger, you know, wore a Pakol hat, which is sort of it's a Pashtun hat. And then Atta was correcting him on the way he wore it. Um, and he was, Atta was criticizing um, uh, J.R. Seeger's uh, diary as not being adequate enough. And he was, and, and Atta was speaking in this very sort of flowery sort of version of the P Persian language. I mean, it was just sort of gamesmanship. And J.R. had to work out how to get Atta on board and basically stop him attacking Dostum and potentially killing Americans uh, in the process. Right. And, you know, so they had to get these two rivals literally pointing in the, in the same direction, which was north towards Masary Sharif. And that took a lot of work. I mean, that, so three of the, so Team Alpha was eight, but it kept on breaking up into, you know, threes and even two sometimes. Yeah. So, so three of Team Alpha, went on a 13-hour um, horse ride. It was absolutely excruciating. David Tyson sort of still, I think, feels the pain um, <laughs> 20 years on. Um, to link up with Atta and basically tell him that, yes, he was going to get an ODA, it's a 12-man Green Beret team, as well as uh, Dostum, and a CIA team, which was Team Bravo, which was three, three people, three CIA officers plus one of Team Alpha, Scott Spellmeyer went, you know, was was sort of uh, stayed behind to command Team Bravo. Uh, and of course, the cash and the supplies. Uh, and then Atta was happy. Uh, and he fought and he fought alongside Dostum and, and helped uh, recapture Masary Sharif. Hmm. That 
was no, but I mean, that did not happen by accident and uh, it was successful, but it, it, you know, there was no guarantee of success. And I, you know, that was something I knew nothing about uh, before I did the research for this book. And, and it was an, you know, it was an incredible thing to be able to pull off. Yeah. And I'm, I'm holding my breath the whole time reading this because I'm watching everything unfold and I'm just picturing just one simple, like, error that the guys have in terms of their communications or their discussions that could unravel the entire thing. Yeah. So it was amazing that it actually followed through in any sense. Um, your book really takes us up to the pivotal moment, you know, with the, the uprising at the prison where Mike's killed and uh, David's fighting for his life. Um, after interviewing uh, most of the people involved in the, well, everybody involved that you, you spoke with, um, did you see any shifts or did you sense that there were any shifts in the country, like the U.S.'s outlook and attitude uh, after this pivotal moment happens? Yes. I mean, I think, I mean, it's sort of, there's a tragic sort of irony about this. Um, yeah. So Rumsfeld and the Pentagon in particular uh, were sort of voices of doom. Uh, you know, the CIA was leading uh, the war and the, they were predicting that they were going to get that the American forces will, will get bogged down for the winter will be fighting through to the spring of 2002 um, and they wouldn't be able to sort of dislodge the the, the Taliban and there would be sort of a Vietnam style quagmire now of mm. course the subsequently was but that's a, you know, right. a, different, a different story but Masri Sharif fell uh, November the 10th uh, uh, 2001, so less than a month after Team Alpha and the first Green Berets uh, got there. But at that point, uh, you know, in classic sort of Afghan fashion, a lot of the Taliban were not killed or captured. They just sort of went home, went to their villages, melted away uh, into Pakistan to sort of reconstitute themselves. And there was, but in, in the US, there was a sense of like, well, it's, it's over. Right. Uh, you know, Masri Sharif has fallen. Now, of course, the uprising was part of a sort of Trojan horse plot to retake Masri Sharif, quite a sophisticated plot. Yeah. Um, but I think back in Washington, I mean, the uprising was quelled after six days. Mike's band was killed, tragically. There was a friendly fire incident with a 2,000-pound JDAM being dropped on a friendly position that killed a number of Afghan allies, wounded five Americans and a couple of Brits. Uh, but in a way, I think it was sort of brushed to one side and, and you know, the indications that were there, the things that people like J.R. Seeger, David Tyson were saying were, were ignored. And instead, the policymakers decided, well, this is easy. We just topple a regime, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, you know, build, having said that the U.S. wasn't in the nation building business, let's build a, you know, centralized democracy in Afghanistan Let's go on, change another regime in Iraq. Right. Um, you know, we can do it. We can, we're Americans. We can do. We've done uh, it a number of anything. times before. Yeah. 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 And of course, so, I mean, I think the moment it changed was, was really uh, the start of December 2001, where the conference at, at Bonn was, um, you know, deciding on the new Afghan government. Mm. A lot of the Dostum was marginalized at that point. Oh, he's, he's a warlord. He's got blood on his hands. Well, who in Afghanistan, who's successful, doesn't have blood on his hands. <laughs> the only people do are living. <laughs> right, exactly. And um, and also Karzai, who was the chosen, you know, leader of Afghanistan and was very sort of acceptable to, you know, spoke good English and he's kind of refined. And, yeah, presentable, you know, he, yeah. Yeah, he very much, exactly the opposite of Dostum, really, who's, yeah. you know, at this point, persona non grata. Um, Karzai was saying... He was proposing that uh, some elements of the sort of defeated, small elements of the defeated Taliban should be incorporated into the new Afghan government, which would be, you know, in accordance with Afghan tradition. And, you know, Rumsfeld and the Bush administration were like, no, with us or against us, uh, they're terrorists, uh, absolutely no way. And it's kind of like hubris, you know, because, right. you know, yeah. 20 years later, we're essentially do it or less than 20 years later we're essentially uh, surrendering to them you know in negotiations and That's so right. rather than having some kind of negotiations from a position of great strength uh, and kind of neutralizing the taliban now i'm not suggesting any of this 
you know, would have been easy. Um, but you can see how the thing kind of turns, uh, you know, in the wake of this, you know, stunning kind of victory right at the start of December 2001. And, and mm -hmm. looking back at it from this vantage point and the events of the last 20 years, and particularly the collapse in the summer, you know, it's pretty tragic. Yeah. When we paralleled the same mistake in Iraq, where we took the military and, you know, all those people, we wouldn't let them back in right away. And, and you know, it was almost exactly the same mistake in a different right. situation. Well, that's American right. hubris, really. Um, yeah. So there are casualties beyond just Mike's, you know, death. He had an infant son uh, at the time that he left. Uh, Shannon was, was you know, in the CIA and, and behind with them. And he had two daughters uh, that were still quite young. Um, do you think that your book, First Casualty, helped them in any sense, maybe gain a little bit more understanding of their father or the situation that he was involved in? Um, have you gotten any sense of any kind of feedback from, from, the, from the kids? Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, I was just texting with Jake Spann the other day, you know, wow. who was a, you know, who was a baby, he was six months old when his, yeah. his father died. And, you know, the heartbreaking photographs of him being held by his grandfather at the funeral, yeah. um, you know, December 10th, 2000, 2001. He wrote a very, I felt quite poignant piece um, that was posted on the Fox News website about, you know, what it's like to, to grow up with, uh, this father that that you you never knew. Right. Um, I mean, I spoke extensively. Yeah, I spoke to both um, Mike's parents, Johnny and Gail Span in Winfield, Alabama. Um, uh, interviewed Shannon Span ex extensively. She's since remarried, and another CIA officer had another child. Left the CIA is now living in Michigan. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it was, you know utterly tragic uh i mean any death obviously is yeah, sure but, but it, mike died you know he was newly remarried he had a, a a new baby um he had been with shannon for you know you know not much more than 18 months or so she wasn't fully incorporated into the span family he was you know the glue that held it all together yeah. and in time you know that sort of blended arrangements you know would have grown and strengthened also mike's first wife so the mother of his two daughters uh was terminally ill with cancer right and, right. and died at the end of 2001 Ugh. and so you know how you know how much can you throw at sort of uh, one family yeah and you know shannon um you know reflects on if she's now suffers from rheumatoid arthritis I mean, she's a very sort of strong woman. She's working day and night on getting Afghan allies out of the country. But she's, you know, she's very frank about it, uh, which, you know, I sort of cover in the book that, you know, she, she paid a price. And she, her um, kind of MO at the time was just press on. Let's just yeah. sort of soldier on and Give work it out. Yeah. But, you know, she, but that catches up with you eventually. And so she's very, you know, reflective. Um, about her experience over the last 20 years, as is in a different way, David Tyson, you know, who's, right. who's had to cope with survivor's guilt, the sort of trauma of what he, what he saw and, and what he did. Um, and I think both of them in different ways decided that, you know, you honor Mike Span by living a good and, a, and uh, successful and meaningful life you right know, which you know obviously there's another route that people can take uh uh sure. so in this and so that's right i mean i it was you know it's very hard it's very hard writing about this stuff you know intimate details of, of families and divorce and and tragedy and people cope with grief in very very different ways right um and so i hope uh to members of the team, you know, one of the very gratifying things members of the teams have said to me is that they learned, they were able to sort of learn the bigger picture and put their experience in the context of what everybody else was doing and kind of learn from the book, which is, you know, incredible when that they were there and I, and I wasn't. Sure. And, you know, so I do hope that, um, you know, members of the family, 
uh, will you know learn more about their father, Team Alpha's mission, uh, America's sort of mission in, in in that period. Because you know I'm very conscious that I'm just you know an outsider dealing with these you know profound intimate details of, right. of people's lives. Right. Well, there's something very fitting about the timing of this book in the sense that the war ended or we left, and this is all about the beginning and the, and the roots of it. So it's, I think it's a really good time to, to reflect on the, on the beginning of it. And obviously, with the recent withdrawal and after 20 years of war, um, there's brings out a lot of emotion, a lot of opinions and feelings on how it was conducted. And those views are, those difference of views are exacerbated by how polarized we are as a nation right now. Yeah. But you spoke with a lot of people. Did you find any common threads from those you spoke with about what the U.S. maybe should have done to assist in a more stable exit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm still speaking to, uh, you know, Team Alpha members and, and others involved in this sort of almost daily. Yeah. And, and I've been, you know, playing a small part in helping Afghans get out. And in fact, the translator that I worked with um, uh, last year in Masri Sharif is now living in my house. And in fact, I'm sitting oh, wow. here in my, I'm sitting here in my office, but he sleep, he sleep, you know, his bed is in my office at the moment as well. That's amazing. Uh, he's not in it, but, uh, and that was, and that was this network, Shannon, David, uh, Justin Sapp, Scott Spellmeyer, they're all part of this effort uh, to get Afghans out. And so, yeah. so their emotions are sort of, you know, mourning, uh, anger, sadness, all those things. Uh, and they are um, channeling those feelings into helping Afghans and getting, you know, banding together and getting something done, which is very much the team. God of, bless them. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's sort of the spirit of Team Alpha 2001, which is, you know, there's no sort of blueprint for this. You know, we're stepping into the unknown and, you know, we, we're going to cut through all the bureaucracy and we're, and we're just going to do it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, certainly, um, you know, I'm not going to speak for any individual members of Team Alpha, obviously, but there's a there's a general consensus uh, that the withdrawal was catastrophic and mismanaged and, you know, in many ways, shameful and uh I mean, they feel in general that uh, the Afghan allies were sort of let down by the American government yeah. and the, the people who sort of stepped up, you know, part, you know, largely, you know, through their own interests, because they wanted their country back as well, to fight alongside the Americans in 2001. Um, you know, we abandoned them. And there's yeah. certainly a, a feeling of that. And in terms of what we should have done over the, over the last 20 years, I mean, there is a there is a sense that the formula that would that was sort of hit upon in this sort of improvised way in two thousand and one worked. Small numbers of Americans, you know, in the working in the wings alongside the Afghans, but it's an Afghan fight. It's not an American fight. That if we'd stuck if we'd stuck with that, um, no one's pretending it would have been easy, but instead of doing the big, you know, USA Inc, you know, big army bases, right. you know, 100,000 troops and all that. Yeah. It, it could have been very different. And I and certainly there's a, you know, I mean my personal view um, and I think this is shared by you know most most of the people who are involved in this sort of early effort is that we should have left a, bit, a residual force of yeah. some size and to just close Bagram and uh, you know, cut off the sort of logistical kind of lifeline to these forces, and then turn around and blame them for not fighting. Right. You know, was was you know a pretty terrible thing to do, yeah. and so that's you know, but it is what it is, and uh, we just you know get on with helping the Afghans that we can. Right. And you know, hope and sort of advocate. For, for not abandoning Afghanistan as a country as we did in 1989, because, you know, we know what happens when, you know, 
we leave a regime like the Taliban, you know, to, co to control sort of ungoverned space in terms of the US with yeah. Al Qaeda still there and ISIS K and goodness knows who else. Well, we'll see them again on our soil, I'm sure. Yeah. And I think I don't know anybody that thought leaving Bagram and, and all the prisoners that were being held there, just being released out into the countryside was a very good idea. But, you know, that's politics, I guess. Um, right. If there's one message that you want your book to, to reach the American public, do you have something in mind? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, how divided the country is now. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11, and I vividly remember how united we were. Bush's popularity rating was 90%, I think, in October yeah. uh, 2001. Uh, one member of Congress, um, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, voted against authorizing military force. I mean, in terms of the sort of global community, NATO uh, invoked Article 5, the UN backed us. Everybody was in, you know, everybody, everybody was behind this. You know, we need to go in and get the people who um, perpetrated 9-11 and stop another uh, attack happening. Right. And I remember thinking at the time, like, this can't last, you know, right. in a bush on the bullhorn in New York. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and of course, that's just a, a sort of a moment. Yeah, um, sure. But, you know, you contrast that with where we are now and just sort of viciousness and people getting canceled every 10 minutes for off color things they said 10 years ago, or, yeah. you know, the lowest common denominator, everybody leaping on um, tweets and just arguing about stupid stuff and uh, in their sort of camps of, uh, you know, putting the worst possible complexion on the motives of the other side. And it's very easy to get uh, depressed about that yeah so, so, so sort of two two things so the first thing is i i want that you know i would like the takeaway and it's my takeaway really is that uh, human beings and particularly americans can do incredible things when we put our mind to it yeah so so these eight guys in team alpha being an example of could go into afghanistan you know and to be eager if not desperate to get in there and basically saying like mike span who had every reason not to go right not only am i okay with going but send me i want to go i want to be at the tip of the spear and and look at what they look at what they did and then if you fast forward to now i feel that the the effort to get afghans out of the, of the country is one of those things where I don't know, I feel that maybe there's polling to back this up or not, but 80% of Americans are to some degree sort of behind that. It's something we can we can agree yeah. on, whether you were for the war or against the war, yeah. you should have, you know, we should have kept more troops in, we should have had them leave, whatever your views are, we can all agree that these are people um, who need our help, the Taliban's, you know, terrible regime, uh, who are going to do God knows what to... Uh, uh, allies of, of America who are left behind. And so, and also, as I sort of mentioned, there are people, individuals from Team Alpha, uh, other current former CIA people, US government people, military, former military, just good-hearted people, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, business people who are involved in getting Afghans out, you know, I think arguably, you know, in my view, filling of the vacuum left by our own government. Right. And that to me is, is, is inspiring. It shows that despite us being very divided in many ways and much more divided than we were 20 years ago, we can do things. And yeah. so that, so I, I find that sort of um, a cause for optimism about the future because it's very easy to get, depressed about a lot of things right and then just follow into the footsteps of everybody else doing the same thing yeah well well mike asked a philosophical question i guess mine's slightly more mechanical um so unfortunately we always seem to be one generation away from another war somewhere in the world um with all the lessons found inside first casualty um despite that it seems like we're still destined to repeat the same mistakes um and maybe even worse ones as we go forward my question is 
and I think about this a lot, how do we build an institutional memory that spans administrations um, so that there are, there are enough people around that say, wait, I've seen this movie before and we do not want to go about it this way. Yeah. I don't know. It's a great question. Um, I mean, part of the greatness of America, I think, is the sort of the vibrancy in we're new. I mean, look around, you know, this houses being torn down and new houses being built in a way that certainly didn't happen in the country where I grew up. And there's, yeah. always, there's this kind of, but that can lead us to sort of dismissing the past. So, mm -hmm. you know, I hope that people read books, like in including this one. Um, I hope that, you know, people talk about, you know, the deep state and all the rest of it. But, you know, there are, there was a cohort of people in the CIA uh, who never lost sight of Afghanistan, who, you know, who basically stayed on that issue, knowing or believing that, that one day it will be relevant again. And they do that every day in lots of different parts of the world. A bit like, you know, the BBC may have a correspondent in, right. in some remote country that nobody cares about, yeah. but suddenly something happens and, and that's their moment. And that investment in expertise, um, pays dividends. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope that there are people in government who, uh, you know, who are away from the cable TV and the talking points who are saying, you know, we've got to get this, this stuff right. We've got to learn from our mistakes. We've got to learn from our successes. Uh, and we've got to keep a sort of a brains trust of people like, I don't know, inside government, but also outside governments, you know, think tanks, um, are people who, you know, in an in a sort of era where there's a lot of stuff that's dumb, <laughs> we can we can have sort of depth and and nuance and expertise. I mean, I think an investment in nuance, uh, wow, yeah, that's, nuance. That's a novel freaking concept. Yeah, <laughs> you know, an investment in languages and uh, cultural expertise. Um, you know, we can we can but hope. You know, but it's. It's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure people said this after Vietnam as well. So, yeah, that's what we're worried about. <laughs> well, Toby, you have survived the traditional portion of our interview. Now we enter what's called the lightning round. And for those okay. who I'm before, this book, <laughs> buy this damn book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's find out more. I'm going to show it as well. That's right. Let's find and out these copies about. behind me as well. So. <laughs> no excuse not to buy it. That's right. And now it's time for you to grab a drink because here we're going to try and uh, find out a little more about our author spotlighted today. So there are no right or wrong answers. There are just answers. And so number one, if you had been inserted into the alpha teams right off the get go, and one of the Afghan commanders had uh, maybe issued you a horse for travel, what would its name have been? <laughs> um, I think I would have called it Gumbo. Gumbo. Because <laughs> that was the name of uh, my childhood dog and a beloved pet who uh, is always good to me. So I hope go. the horse would behave the same way. Drink to gumbo there. All right. Now, if you had one personal item that you had been able to take with you during this mission, what do you think you would have taken with you? Uh, a baby wipe. Or a, set, a, a pack of baby wipes. <laughs> You're you need more than one. Some Charmin, yeah. yeah. I mean, as a foreign correspondent, I would always buy baby wipes. You know, can't have a shower. You know, the next best thing is a few baby wipes. Dust gets everywhere. Um, it gives some sense of uh, sanitation. There's obviously issues with uh, going to the bathroom and stuff. So, yeah, you can't go wrong with a pack of baby wipes. Baby wipes it is. Might have been worth millions of dollars. All right. Uh, my last question is this. How many current government officials did you royally piss off writing First Casualty? I don't know. I mean, I pissed off a lot with Dead Men Risen, the, uh, my second book, which ended up getting bought by the Ministry of Defense and the entire pr first print run being pulped. Um, <laughs> um, you must have hit a nerve. <laughs> right. So... So far, I don't know. I'd imagine there might be some people at the Pentagon who are particularly uh, happy. I mean, I interviewed Donald Rumsfeld a number of 
times. Obviously, he he died recently, and he was yeah. a little bit too far into his dotage to interview. But he probably doesn't come out uh, particularly well. Uh, so I don't know. But I haven't had any, um, you know, fires set outside my house or uh, <laughs> no effigies you know, or anything. <laughs> no, or even like you know. Uh, calls with the line going dead in the middle of the night so yeah you know, sure touch wood i think i'm okay i'm oh, pretty so close to, i'm pretty close i live pretty close to the cia and so far i haven't detected any clandestine operations to hiding uh, in plain sight maybe take me out yeah yeah that's right <laughs> all right shawnee okay well you served as an exchange officer in the royal norwegian navy oh and unless i was drunk and read this incorrectly you help oh transport reindeer on a troop landing craft. That's right. Well, this is something I don't think I've ever <laughs> spoken about outside, you know, the family. That's so why that's, you're here. That's true. Um, so that was in 1987. So I was a, an officer in the Royal Navy. I was still at uh, university at the time. I was sponsored through degree course at Oxford, uh, studying modern history, mm. and I had a month's exchange with the Royal Norwegian Navy, which was great fun. Um, and we, <laughs> we, you know, zipped around on board fast patrol boats in and out of the fjords. And, and one of the duties, as you correctly say, was moving reindeer on these little landing craft uh, from their summer pastures to their winter pastures. So I think they were on islands and we were taking them to the mainland. But yeah, we'd heard these reindeer onto the troop ships and pull up the back gate and move them. So, I mean, it wasn't exactly a frontline, you know, no, style huh? mission, but it was it was fun and it was it was so, uh, something different. Sounds like a recruiting. And, and for our viewers under 10, they weren't the magic Sandy, Santa. Yeah, right. it wasn't Santa's. Yeah, they're right. Um, okay, my second question. You reported from 33 countries while reporting for the Daily Telegraph and Sunday Times, if, if my research is correct. Yeah. Um, which of those countries had the best cuisine? Best cuisine? Don't say England. No, <laughs> uh, definitely not um, England. I would say Lebanon. Um, no kidding. Yeah, so I love Lebanese food. So do I. Um, this sort of blend of, you know, Middle Eastern, but with sort of, you know, French influence and Mediterranean influence. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty nice. Uh, now, one of the things about me is I'll eat anything. <laughs> and so, you know, I actually quite liked MREs, you know. In the, okay. So that's that's shows you, that, makes, that makes one of you. <laughs> right, that shows the sort of standard. So I'm very happy with pretty basic food, but I do love uh, really good food. Um, I mean, in, I was in prison in Zimbabwe in 2005, a whole other story. Um, and we, I mean, the, actually, I mean, this wasn't the national cuisine, but we had um, lawyers and a couple of um, diplomats from the uh, British embassy there who bring us in bacon and avocado sandwiches when we were in prison okay. those tasted pretty nice yeah i bet <laughs> so that's right up there with uh, lebanese cuisine nice but i will eat anything so all right. Fuzzy. all right my third question so you are our third brit that we've had as a guest and our second graduate of oxford university so my question revolves around oxford which is the greatest film to feature or be set at oxford university is it 1984's Oxford Blues featuring Rob Lowe or 2003's What a Girl Wants featuring Amanda Bynes. Okay, so uh, I will go for A. Okay. okay. <laughs> Mainly because I haven't seen the other movie. Oh. And, but also because I was um, I was at Oxford when I was going to ask you were, hap were happening. So the no. boat race mutiny and it was yeah. portrayed, I don't know whether how accurate it was as sort of the American, you know, these yeah. Americans from Dartmouth coming in and, yeah. you know, you know, kind of taking over this uh, hallowed institution. Um, and so, yes, definitely A, because it, it sort of just reminds me of the time there. And I did, I did row at Oxford 
Oh, wow. Didn't know that. Very, very low standard because I was in a very small college. The, um, the sort of smallest fully fledged college, Corpus Christi. So uh, we were uh, always like in division three. And so all these, you know, Oriel and Christchurch and University College that supplied guys who, ran, uh, you know, rode in the boat race uh, were sort of just literally in a different league to us. But, you know, it was a fun thing to do at college. Nice. Well, I have a bonus question. It's an obligatory question since you're English. Um, who was the greatest Beatle and why is it Paul McCartney? <laughs> Definitely not Paul McCartney. Uh, oh. I think George. I think George Harrison is pretty cool. George John Lennon. George Harrison is damn cool. But yeah. Paul Ringo, but definitely not. Paul McCartney's Paul. the greatest Beatle. Just <laughs> and here we go again. Hey everybody, we love this book. It was First Casualty. This really kind of explains the early parts of the war for a lot of folks who have forgotten it over the years. Um, this really goes into grand detail about really the early successes and how we kind of lost our way and uh, really speaks to uh, a select few in our country who went uh, in harm's way right off the get-go in an austere conditions and um, really uh, were the best of us at that time. So uh, Toby, this was a fantastic book. I, it was so full of detail and I just soaked it all up. It was fantastic and I learned a ton. And I hope everybody else goes out and buys this and it's uh, canon. remembers. Yeah. It's canon now for, for, for Gulf War history. This is canon. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And thanks, Sean. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Cheers to you, sir. Cheers. All right. Shiny boy. We had Toby in the show and his latest book, First Casualty. Man, chock full of info and some, yeah. I mean, firsthand accounts. He doesn't get into the politics of, you know, sides versus sides. He really just delves down into what actually occurred, which is quite refreshing in these times. And um, we're going to toast out uh, Chris, who could not be here today. And I know he would want to talk to Toby because uh, yeah, this would. is right up his alley. So but anyway, folks, um, Sean and I say it get this book. It really uh, goes to the heart of the matter and where things began in an excellent way. And uh, it really honors the people that were involved. And uh, that was, I was grateful to, to, to see that style of writing for this book. So me too. And if you're a teacher, if you teach anything that has to do with re recent history, this is something you should be assigned. This to. should be must reading for military uh, academies as well. So uh, I will definitely throw that out there. So uh, cheers to Sean, Chris, we love you, buddy. And we'll see you soon. Mm. Mm.